Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 28th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. A bloody feud in Drogheda has led to at least three attempted murders with three actual murders linked to individuals involved in the violence. Drogheda has been on high alert, but the attempt to kill Brendan Maguire on Tuesday when a volley of shots were fired at him in a drive-by shooting at the M1 retail park led to criticism on this programme yesterday of how Drogheda is now under-policed with just one patrol car to service the town. Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash echoed uh, those sentiments saying that uh, the town is disgracefully under-resourced and stretched to complete breaking point. It's not good enough, he says, uh, that a minister will visit guard stations and promise the sun, the moon and the stars then decide on uh, the uh, uh, that he's not responsible for guard matters. He says that this kind of cynicism is an insult to the intelligence of the people of Drada and to the guards on the streets who are at breaking point. The Taoiseach spoke about the issue in the Dáil yesterday and said that the number of Gardaí has increased to over 14,000, the largest in a very long time. There are more civilians involved in the organisation which frees up Gardaí to carry out frontline policing work and there is real investment in new Garda stations throughout the country. There has also been investment in IT and vehicles. Such investment will continue, the Taoiseach claimed. Let's hear a little bit more of what Leo Varadkar had to say to the doll. I'm obviously very aware of the incidents that have taken place in recent days, uh, shootings in uh, the M1 retail park in Drogheda, uh, in Cordoff, in my own constituency, in Kulak, uh, in the deputies. Uh, and government is uh, absolutely working with the Gardaí to improve their resources and capabilities to deal with all forms of crime, uh, but particularly violent crime. It is the case that for many years there was little or no investment in the Gardaí as a consequence of the um, recession uh, that this country experienced. But over the past three years, uh, we have been investing in the Gardaí again. Labour Senator Gerald Nash is with us in studio, as is local Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd. Good morning to both of you, and thank you indeed for joining us. And when you hear the Taoiseach there talking about continued investment in Garda resources, Fergus O'Dowd, and you know that there was one Garda car patrolling the town when a man was shot in the middle of a very busy shopping area at a quarter to three in the afternoon. You can't but say such bluff and bluster. 
Well, I think the first thing is that I understand the fears and the worries of everybody in our community, and I fully support the actions that the Guardi have taken, and I, uh, I very much understand and uh, appreciate the concerns of everybody, and it, it worries me and it worries mm. you. It worries all of us that this is going on, and uh, I agree absolutely that it is entirely unacceptable and I wasn't aware that there was one guard car until I read Jed's statement actually yesterday. I wasn't aware that was mm. the case. Uh, I spoke to the guard superintendent on Monday before any of this happened, uh, and I wasn't made aware of those issues mm. either. You know Drogheda um, like the back of your hand. I do, but I Could you imagine I going up to the M1 yeah. retail park and shooting somebody five times? Well, uh, I, go it, to, it, I, go, I go to the M1 yeah, retail no, park Yeah, no, I know, but could you imagine it's going up there and shooting somebody five times in it the middle of the afternoon yeah. and getting to sea point yeah and the guards have no trace of you no right. trace of you whatsoever no i think that's 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 absolutely and entirely unacceptable and whose fault is that well i think the first point i want to make is that i am a government today and i accept mm. responsibility uh, for you know for the political mm. uh, issues that arise as a result mm. of this the first point is that the guardy are accountable, uh, obviously, through the Garda Commissioner to the Minister for Justice. Mm. As soon as this matter happened, uh, I raised it with the Minister for Justice. I've raised it at the Fine Gael Parliamentary mm. Party last night. But Fine Gael has uh, let Drogheda down. Is, no, 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 no. Well, I thought you said you were taking no, responsibility. No, yeah, of course. No, yeah. no, but can I just tell you the, the way in which the responsibility actually works is that the Commissioner... He deals with the number of Gardaí. He deals with the mm. overtime issue. He deals with the issues. All right. Do you have confidence in Drew Harris? No, no. But I just want to make the point, Mike, because it's too serious. I, 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 I don't. Oh yeah, no. I'm, no, no, so, I'm sorry, but we're all tired of bluff and bluster now yeah, at this well, stage. Well, you know, well, I'm not giving you bluff or yeah. bluster, Michael. I want to give you the truth. The truth is, as I said, it is absolutely entirely unacceptable. Mm. I was entirely and absolutely unaware of it. Mm. But the facts are also that. I have arranged that the, that the Taoiseach will be speaking to the Garda superintendent and people from the mm. Drugs Task Force before this ever happened, Michael. So yeah. I'm very much conscious of the problem. And the other point is that um, the Commissioner, I wrote to the Commissioner uh, some weeks ago. Uh, I got an acknowledgement. I, I asked to meet with him. He hasn't responded. When I spoke to Jed here beside me mm. yesterday, mm. Uh, he proposed, and I agreed that we should all of us go uh, jointly to the Garda Commissioner okay. well, to express our well, views. Well, as well. well, one, one, he, one of the issues you might ask him well, well, for the day-to-day management. Fishes and loaves. Fishes and loaves. But let's look at it this way. No, let's look at it this the, way. Fishes and loaves. Michael, he, he said he doesn't have the resource. He is the person who allocates them. Taoiseach, when yeah. I asked directly last night, he said there's a hundred million mm. in the Garda overtime budget that it should not be. Yeah, an well, there's issue. an overtime ban in Drogheda at the no, moment well, for did, whatever the reason. But we have to find yeah. out what that well, is. And yeah. I'm happy. I'm mm. happy. And I want to yeah. make this point to go with Jed and all of my Well, let me ask Jed Nash about sure it because the Garda armed response unit was withdrawn <clears throat> from Drogheda. Do you know where it was on Tuesday night? in Drogheda, outside of the hospital because uh, there were gangs of people waiting to hear Brendan Maguire would recover uh, and uh, the area was very tense apparently. It was. Um, I mean, Michael, um, I, I have rarely in 20 years in public life been as frustrated as I am now uh, in terms of uh, the lack of resources that we have in Drogheda. Uh, my phone, probably like Fergus and other uh, representatives locally, has been absolutely hopping. Uh, since Monday afternoon, people are living in fear. Uh, yeah. People require yeah. protection, uh, and 
not getting that protection at the moment and our local Gardaí who are doing an exceptionally dif- difficult job and a good job under the circumstances mm. need the support of the state. One of the first principles of the state is to protect its citizens and was a, a failure uh, at the moment in that respect uh, to protect the citizens of uh, Drogheda. Um, you wouldn't need to be a criminal mastermind to figure out when is the best time to shoot somebody in Drogheda. It's mm. now. Um, the reality is that we have five to seven guards on shifts on units when we should have 12 to 14. We've one marked guard a car patrolling an area with a population of 60 to 70,000. Mm-hmm. We had the armed support unit withdrawn uh, from full-time cover in Drogheda uh, last week. And there is an overtime ban. And like Fergus, I have a path worn to um, Garda management, uh, both local, locally and nationally, trying to get the kind of support uh, that the people of Drogheda and guards in Drogheda need. Uh, of course, before Christmas, we had uh, the Minister for Justice uh, visit uh, the Garda station in Drogheda in a blaze of publicity. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently uh, he uh, said... Uh, that um, he can speak for himself and I'll be speaking to him later on in the context of a Shannon debate that I've organised later on this morning. He said that Drogheda will get what Drogheda wants. Mm. Drogheda got 18 probationer guards straight out of Templemore and we've only managed to retain three. And it was incredibly disappointing and we've seen the, the fallout Taoiseach from said that now. Yesterday, the Garda has made some important progress in tackling the insidious threat of organised crime. Does he know what's going on? Uh, he does. I've, I made it very clear last does night. He? Not Well, just, Michael, you asked a mm. question. The answer is yes. Mm. I made it very clear, not just to the Taoiseach and the Minister for Justice, but at the whole parliamentary party last night, exactly the fears and the worries the people have and that they're not being listened to and that the Guardi haven't been given the resources. My point was, and my point remains, is that is that we have to get them. And I, like Jed, I have my motion mm. done as well. The Taoiseach will be visiting Drada tomorrow and he's, he he will be meeting, as I said, with the senior guardee. <coughs> uh, just to go back to one point, Jed, just uh, when Charlie Flanagan did visit, there were no media present. We invited no media to that actual visit. So it's not true to say it was actually a publicity stunt. It wasn't. Uh, it, it was a visit to meet. Uh, he met with the Garda superintendent and the chief superintendent in a closed visit. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't uh, meet any media other than that there was one media person, uh, not from the station. Okay, that, well, no, I'll make the point. I'll no, make no, the point. You have made the point. It wasn't a publicity stunt. There was a journalist found well, out you know, it was on, look, and know, they, pe- they pe- met pe- him pe- there. Pe- but we didn't. No, no. The name of the game here can, is not to score points. It's to tell the truth. No, the name of the game the here is, is that people want not, to know if there wasn't a publicity stunt. All right, oh, you've said that ten times, sir. Well, I think he I, keeps. And the clock, I, I, the clock I, I is ticking down. This is the famous game of talking the clock down. The name of the game here is protecting the people. I'm happy to be here, and I say as long as you want. It's not just protecting. It's about actually accountability. And I mean, Fergus mentioned accountability. We have a Minister for Justice who, on the one hand, uh, tells me repeatedly in the channel when I raise mm. these issues, and will probably rehearse the same old routine this morning, that he's not responsible for the allocation of Gardaí. Now, strictly yeah. speaking, he isn't. But at the same time, he's... Well, do you know where there are some Gardaí in Drogheda? Do you know where there are some Gardaí in Drogheda stationed permanently time, in the hospital? At the same time. In the hospital. Brendan Maguire, who was shot on Tuesday, his brother was shot last July, uh, and he's in long-term care, paralysed in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, under armed guard. A situation that puts patients in the hospital under threat uh, and now his I brother is in there have their armed guard there than somebody well, go in and kill well perhaps there's, uh, well, perhaps there's more armed guardy there rather than gar- guardy on the street preventing Michael, people ending public, up in hospital I think the point is I hate to think that resources have to be 
put for that. But the fact is, if there wasn't an armed guard there, other people would go in to kill other people as well. And that's a fact. Can I just the read The fact uh, is, we need to get the guard he draw the. There's a very insightful. There's a very insightful. There's a very insightful article uh, this morning in uh, the Daily Star. Nicola Donnelly reporting on what's happening in, in Drogheda, and I just want to read a, a very short paragraph from her report. It says it's understood that the shooting of Brendan Maguire was a preemptive strike against the Maguires by the local rival fraction just weeks before a key figure of the Maguire gang is due to be released from prison. This article is promising more trouble. But this is the point, I mean, this yeah. is exactly why, as I said earlier on, you won't, don't need to be a criminal mastermind to know that now is the time to strike Andrada. And this is, stri- this is striking the fear of God into people in this town. Regular people going about their own business. I was made aware yesterday of you know, an individual who witnessed uh, this um, brutal attack on Monday. They are absolutely traumatised. Absolutely traumatised. Understandably so. I'd be traumatised. I think anybody listening to this would be traumatised having experienced something like that. Can I go back, Michael, if you don't mind, to the point I made earlier on about ministers for justice visiting Garda stations and so on and, and, and the rights of wrongs, rights of wrongs around the publicity yeah. associated with that. You know, that is what it is. It managed to find its way onto a, a, a local media outlet and that's the way of the okay. world. Yeah. Um, I wasn't aware, by mm-hmm. the way, that the Minister for Justice was visiting Drogheda. It was a nobody long-standing was protocol no, nobody, um, that, no, you know, Rockless members are notified, but that, 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 that was British. But, but, the about, each other. but the point, oh, right. about, okay. the point mm-hmm. about it is this um, that the Minister mm-hmm. will say that he isn't responsible for the allocation of guards but mm-hmm. is happy to visit guard stations mm-hmm. and make commitments that unfortunately he knows that he can't keep. So that's why I believe that, that, that these events can be cynical. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that Charlie Flanagan is a cynical man I don't believe that anybody sitting around mm-hmm. his table is a cynical man. People do their very okay. best to represent the interests okay. of the people that they represent There's too, there's but, too many political know, points to be made uh, here no, this but, morning but, but, for people listening to us. I mean people are afraid and rightly so. There was a terrible feud here and the town was heavily resourced. Uh, all the additional guard, the armed response unit uh, did the feud end? Well I think the two issues are Michael is that we have to get to the bottom of why they were withdrawn and why the armed response unit wasn't kept in town. That's one issue. Well why, it, why now? No, why no, not? No, no but no that's looking. Why not in December when people were asking those questions? Michael uh, what I was told and it was public uh, policy enumerated by the Garda Commissioner at the time that those Garda were there at least until Christmas. Now that was the yeah. that was given. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, that was my clearly, question to you. Why? No, 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 but it was taken away. But it's it's an operational matter and I, I, but having said that, that's what we will be talking to Tishik about tomorrow. And I just want to make the point again, and it isn't a political point, but it's a mm. fact. Ask the Taoiseach to no, come in here, will you? The Taoiseach is in Drogheda tomorrow, isn't Michael, he? Or? he? He is in yeah. Drogheda. Well, ask him to come in here, will uh, you? Michael, I think his media, they are making mm. contact with the station. I'm not dealing with any mm. of that. Mm. But what I can say is this, that I asked the Taoiseach to come here before... Blathering I, on yesterday Michael, in the doll, fully aware uh, of what's going on in Drogheda. You can say that, but what I can say is this, mm. that... I'm very much concerned, as anybody else is about this. I've asked the teacher to come to Drada to meet and talk about this very issue before any of this awful, mm. appalling evil happen in our streets. And I will ensure as best I can as a public representative that there'll be, there will be adequate and proper number of Gardaí. As the Gardaí decide, they're the people who decide, not me, not you, not Jed, mm. but there must be, the people must be safe in their homes and they're not safe in their homes today. And that's a fact. Okay. And that's what's wrong. And did you think they would be? I, I did, yes, yeah. Because oh, really? I, yes, I do, because mm. I believe the Gardaí, 
I have a strong view that I will trust the Gardaí and Drada and the leadership of the Gardaí as to what their needs are. And if their needs are not being met, and clearly they're not, mm. uh, we have to find out why that is so. And we no, have to nobody, sure nobody's questioning the well, leadership hold, of, hold, of, hold, of, hold, of well, the Gardaí and Drada. No, 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 hold, uh, hold, hold on a second. Back in, December, yeah. back in December, there were endless number of people who were saying, this is going to kick off again <clears> in January when the guards are of gone. Of course, yeah. Uh, so, so it's an operational matter, Michael. I'm not. You're privy. on your own thinking that people. No, were I'm safe. not. I'm not. Everybody I, was expecting this to happen, Michael. The point is this: that as a TD for Drogheda, mm. I was not made aware, and I did not know until Red Jed's statement about the Gardaí. I didn't actually know that. You told us a few I'm moments ago that you knew that there was a commitment to keep the guards in Drogheda until, until the end of December. Yes, yes. So here we are in the middle of February, yes, towards the end of February. it's a operational matter. And whatever the Gardaí want, they must get. I don't decide what they want, but I will absolutely support. Mm. And I said to the Gardaí locally, the superintendent, that he told me he, he, he made it very clear to the Minister for Justice mm. and obviously clearly we're going to be debating that in the Dáil and the Senate today and we'll debate with the, talk to Tishka about it tomorrow but you know it, it is unacceptable what happened uh, but we have to make sure that it never happens again Michael mm. that's, that's it it's an odd statement, isn't it? No, but... but I, th- I, th- I just think that's a, a well, really odd statement. OK, well... well you're, you're it's, a, it's unacceptable, and we'll we make sure it won't happen again. A man was nearly well, killed. We're waiting well, for the, the next point, one. The point, the question... No, Michael, no, the point, the issue here is why were the Gardaí withdrawn? Why no, the, no, 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 the question is why when are the Gardaí coming back to Drogheda? Yeah, that's the question. Yeah, but the, the, no, the, the, the question that it arose from the statement and the fact... That the guard Not from the statement. We were gone. talking about this no, no. on the radio yesterday. Everybody knows there's one guard a car oh, it. You know, I'm sorry if you if you're not in touch with what's happening in your own town, Fergus. Michael, but look, the question that's, that's, the question that's, is that's, not that it's not acceptable. No of course, it's of course. I'm making comments like that, Michael. That's a silly comment. Uh, the, the point is, you said you had needed to read a statement from Jed Nash to find out that there was one guard car in the town. No, no, I said that the guard uh, that the uh, sorry that the overtime had been withdrawn and that they did the force the. Okay. Uh, well, look. No, hold on. That's. How I found out. Right. Like it or lump it, that's how I All found right. out. I, I and I spoke that. to yeah. the Gardaí before yeah. I read his yeah. statement, and right. they didn't tell me that. Okay. So I wasn't aware All right. of that. It's, okay. And that's okay. the truth. Okay. I, I only that. speak the I truth accept that. Yeah. I accept that. And, and now you're saying is, it's not no, acceptable. What it is happened? not what, acceptable. What, uh, and we must make sure it doesn't happen again. Yes. So so that brings us to the question which I would have thought was the first question. When are the Gardaí coming back to draw it? Because this could happen today. That is what we have to find out. That is my job. That's Jed's job. The first the first point is that, as I said earlier on, we have to mm. meet the Garda Commissioner. He is the accounting officer for the, this day-to-day running of the affairs, John. We're not privy to what the issues are in terms of the numeracy or the money and this and that, but he has the resources. Uh, the Taoiseach said last night... Yeah, a yeah. Whole, you know, he has you're the resources. Right, you're right. And he's not you're put right, them in You're right. And you're I want to find out why right. not. He, do, he and is right. Sure. Because well, well, the armed response unit was outside the hospital the other night. Absolutely, and I saw the armed response unit on the streets of Drogheda last night, and that's very welcome, but the problem is that's a temporary measure. It's uh, important until, in the until this dies. There was an impression that um, the lid was being kept on this feud, uh, but inevitably, and it was an inevitability mm. that something like what happened on Monday happened, and it will happen again. There will be repri- reprisals mm. in the nature of these things. By definition, that's exactly what happens. The point about this is that temporary quick fix solutions aren't what the people of Drogheda need. It's a permanent policing Absolutely. presence Absolutely. in our town Absolutely. that is nailed down. And the reality is that okay. the political pressure that's required isn't being applied to the commissioner. Operationally, I can't understand for the life of 
of me why there isn't that permanent um, presence at all. Yeah. I said yesterday yeah. in the Shannon that um, my advice to the Taoiseach would be this. If you don't have additional resources for Drada, and if you're not prepared, for example, to fund the multi-agency task force approach that has been um, proposed mm. by well, Councillor Peter Smith and I, term plan, yeah. the longer-term yeah, plan, yeah, which yeah. is something mm-hmm. that the government has to consider. An we've had, we've mm-hmm. had a meeting uh, spearheaded by the Council all of the different, all of the different agencies about the longer-term problems mm-hmm. that we're facing in this town mm-hmm. in terms of deprivation, in terms okay. of neglect and so on. It's a separate matter, okay. but the immediate I, I issues think, are I, I, think you, I think you both uh, agree on every aspect of this. Fergus O'Dell, you've got the hard ride because you're the government party no, representative. No because you're the government party I'm representative. But, but, like you, but, but, but Yes, but you are committed as committed as Jeb National to applying pressure on the authorities to get the resources necessary. But they decide what they need. That's my point. And the commissioner is the person who decides whether they get okay. them or not. All right. And I want to get to the bottom of that. Okay. That's why there's a requirement uh, for political well, pressure I do want persuasion to, to the Gardaí. Sure well, we're, hear, we're hearing that the commitment. The Gardaí put, their, put right. their lives okay. on the line every day for us. Got to leave it there. Thank and you. Just, and and mm. the Gardaí, it's important, notwithstanding the, what happened, that they are in the Lord's mm. Hospital because otherwise God knows what would happen. All right, got to leave there. Thank you both indeed uh, for coming in to us uh, this morning. Fine Gael TD for Loud, Fergus O'Dowd and Labour Party Senator Gerald Nash. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the idea of uh, providing rural transport uh, was uh, discussed at uh, the Transport Committee yesterday with the uh, National Transport Authority saying it proposes pilot schemes uh, that uh, would award aid to Hackney and community transport services that would operate Uber-type taxis in rural parts of uh, the country. Let's talk about this with Seamus Boland, who's the Chief Executive of Irish Rural Link. Good morning to you, Seamus, and thanks for joining us. So I suppose uh, the, the arguments uh, in relation to this are, are well rehearsed, and everybody knows uh, the difficulties, uh, particularly if people want a, a drink on an evening or have had a drink the evening before in getting from A to B. Uh, but there was warnings yesterday from uh, taxi owners uh, about uh, the dangers associated with a non-regulated industry and how elsewhere this has led to some very serious problems, some very serious crimes, some serious assaults, rapes and even murders, they said. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're really throwing in the the hyperbole in order to to stop this altogether. Let's be blunt here: we're not. I wouldn't be talking about any service that would be not regulated, or any service that wouldn't contain the safety and local link program around the country is a really fantastic program, and it delivers passengers um, every week uh, all around to health centres and all the rest, and it it does a really good job. I think a lot of the thinking around this would be the proposal um, would be, uh, in my opinion, operated by these organizations because they're already there. Um, and even if it's not, which I, I think it should be, by the way, but you you have to design a service which fits the regulatory requirements and which isn't, uh, which is legal, which does cover insurance matters and, and, and which does ensure drivers are trained etc. We're talking about a, a service mm. which would be part-time anyway. Uh, and and again, my challenge back to the taxi organisations is you guys have not managed to deliver the commercial service in rural Ireland, so it's not likely you're going to do so in the future. But how would you protect people? You protect them in the same way as all public transport and private transport like taxis and hackneys are protected. 
you know, hackneys are still used in rural areas. They have a, a certain regulation that they must adhere to. These drivers will have to say have to adhere to the same. So you wouldn't be setting up a fly-by-night. You wouldn't be, it, it, and even talking about the Uber thing, it wouldn't mm. really be Uber. It would be probably linked to local link transport. Uh, so therefore, it would be regulated in that sense. So that would bring into place protections which are already there in the existing services. And would it work if it wasn't fly-by-night? Oh, it were, well, again, you're, you're, you're mm. designing a very different service because you're, you're talking about a service where maybe local uh, trans, uh, farmers, maybe, or people who are underemployed or not employed uh, can work on a part-time basis mm. or, or work on availability basis, depending on their schedule. Uh, and again, once they're registered with the service uh, in the same way as uh, existing uh, cars and taxis are registered with local link then it'll work and it'll suit people because they don't want to be full-time at it and uh, they want to be doing other things and it's on an availability uh, mode in other words you're not if you're not there you can't deliver the passenger but when you're on you're on Right, uh, and is there a, a model, a successful model that could be followed? Uh, because uh, the taxi drivers were saying uh, that you see these type of confrontations at best and very serious crimes at worst on a daily basis elsewhere. I don't know where the daily basis is coming and I don't know where the elsewhere is. Are we talking about Dublin City? Are we talking about New York? What? I mean, I, my mm. understanding, number of crimes... Well, I think we're talking probably more like New York and yeah, Hong exactly. Kong. Uh, but <laughs> so, but uh, is there a rural scheme like this that we no. can use as a model? Well, again, the closest to the rural... Again, some local link groups do provide uh, car services. You know, they do uh, organise cars, uh, hackneys, Whatever to bring people, so it's, there's there's bits of it there already, and and these are just local people who are available to drive. Uh, it is subsidised that particular program, mm. so it, therefore, it, but they they are re- registered, they are linked in, uh, they are uh, you know they are monitored in that sense. And again, we're talking about rural Ireland. We're talking about a service being provided by local people to local people. So it's not exactly that, you know, uh, someone from God knows where turns up who's just got out of prison, which is what nearly what the taxi people are trying to say. That's not the case mm. and won't be the case. And again, Irish Rolling wouldn't be too happy if that was the kind of service uh, being brought in. And, and you I, can stop it from being the case. I mean, uh, if yeah. uh, somebody in uh, the biggest town near you loses their job and decides, well, look, I'll go down and try and make a, a, a yeah. few bob by signing up to this thing on the internet, uh, well, can that be stopped? Of course it can. I mean, if, if somebody who just did, comes out of nowhere and wants to provide this kind of service uh, and, and, and in any kind of official capacity, well, it, it shouldn't be as simple as going on the internet and signing up. Mm. I mean, you, you do as they do in existing services. Uh, you make sure you have your license, you make sure you have your insurance, you make sure the car you're using is, is um, properly is, is usable, mm. is not defective, etc., etc. So so, it, you know, what we've been saying to Shane Ross, this isn't, well, it's, we think it's a flexible service, and that's what's really good about it. It's not necessarily cheap in the sense that you have to do the regulatory stuff first. It is not about letting in the fly-by-night or the cowboy or whatever who just 
as this ruse uh, to, to head off and bring in passengers. It's not about that, and it will cost a bit of money. And that's why we've said to the Department of Transport and NTA, if you're really looking at this, you've got to design it in such a way that the consumer or the, the passenger is fully happy and trusts it. And uh, anything else will simply lead to the kind of uh, place where the taxis are, are suggesting. Okay, well, I suppose uh, conversations like this are, are part of establishing uh, that trust. Uh, it does uh, appear uh, as uh, though there will be some service at some stage and the NTA, as I said earlier on, now talking about uh, pilot schemes. Uh, so yeah. we'll be watching And we're very, we're very, Michael, we're very, really pleased that the NTA are involved in this mm-hmm. because they will bring rigour and they will bring uh, standards to this, you know, and again, uh, I, I stress, we Irish Rail Link would not be standing over any service that is in any way not reputable. It has to be reputable. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed, Seamus Boland, Chief Executive of Irish Rural Link. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, let's uh, talk uh, a little bit about uh, data breaches. Uh, we've heard of a few of them on uh, the programme. Indeed, uh, we told you of a few of them on the programme uh, with help uh, from a local listener and on foot of uh, the latest report uh, from the Data Protection Commissioner. Uh, Marie, uh, you have uh, some new information for us. Yes, Michael, we've been alerted to another data breach at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital through a member of the public who found a sheet of paper at the Twenties area in Drogheda, which is quite close to the hospital on the street. And it contains the name of a consultant and the names of some details, the names of some eight patients and some personal details. These are patients that Mm. were being treated, it would appear, from what's on the sheet uh, in the AED department of the hospital, in the emergency department of the hospital. And as I said, there is eight patients in total and it gives details, their names, sex, date of birth and some other uh, small pieces of information that I won't go into Mm. uh, about them. So I did contact uh, the hospital uh, on Monday when this was brought to our Mm. attention and they did collect uh, the sheet for their own uh, safekeeping. And Mm. I contacted, I asked for a statement and I contacted the HSE Mm. for a response. But so far we've had no official statement. So it comes, I think, Michael, nearly a year. It was last February, I think, that was the last one that we reported uh, a greater number of patients involved at that time Uh, but still it's a huge concern that despite repeated breaches over the past couple of years since I've been here that it seems this is still being allowed to happen. Patient files lying on the street uh, for uh, I think that's uh, the third time that uh, we've uh, had them in our hands and handed them back to the hospital and said uh, think you've lost something with uh, thanks to our listeners of course uh, and uh, no response from the HSE when did you say uh, you were in touch with them? On Monday. Oh okay oh, yes. well that was a bit early yes, to be expected a response yes uh, it's only uh, Thursday I'd say uh, Thursday week uh, fortnight from now we might get a response from them. And I know they did definitely receive my email because it was in foot of that that the mm. hospital contacted me ah, to come yes. and pick it up. Mm, mm. 
and uh, I did speak to the manager in the hospital. I'm really surprised, though. I, you know, I thought they might have said, look, uh, we look into it, uh, but we'd like to apologise to the patients involved or something like that. But nothing uh, of that sort, obviously. Nothing mm. so far, Michael. And it is, I mean, you know, it mentions the different, sh- like the ground floor medical short stay, the modular floor one short stay surgical unit, sixth floor west medical unit. So, like... You know, it's, mm. it's given details. I wouldn't like to see my name on okay. it. Okay, yeah. You yeah. Know. Did the HSE ever respond uh, about uh, the lack of ambulance personnel? No. Oh, okay, right. I, I did say it would be uh, Tuesday of next week before we get the response. I reckon it'll be Thursday uh, fortnight, today fortnight, uh, before we get a response on that one. Uh, but time will tell. Now, uh, we had uh, allocated some time on the programme uh, to talk about uh, the killing of Pat Finucan, uh who was murdered in February of 1989 by loyalist paramilitaries acting in collusion with uh, the British Government Intelligence Service, MI5, if you're old enough uh, to remember, you may remember uh, the terrible story that came from Belfast in the 1980s when Pat Finucan was sitting at his breakfast table, shot 14 times in front of his uh, three children and his wife, who was also wounded uh, during uh, the attack. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, Michael Finucan, one of uh, the three children at the time, uh, looking quite uh, jubilant on television last night, as indeed his wife, uh, Geraldine, was, uh, for that matter, saying that they had won because uh, there's been a long time campaign to secure justice for Pat Finucane by way of a public inquiry. Now, there's an ironic twist to this in that uh, the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom said that uh, it was uh, not necessary to hold a public inquiry, but on the other hand, it made a declaration that an an effective investigation into his death had not been carried out. Pat Finucane was 39 when he was uh, killed in February of 1989, and yesterday his uh, wife, uh, Geraldine, spoke uh, to reporters outside of uh, the Supreme Court saying, we won. Uh, a simple, straightforward statement uh, that has been rejected by the British government uh, but was supported by the Irish government. And this is uh, some of what the Taoiseach Leo Radker had to say yesterday. The United Kingdom government made a commitment in 2001 at Weston Park uh, to carry out a public inquiry under the Inquiries Act into the death of Pat Finucane. The Supreme Court decision today uh, shows that the reviews carried out to date uh, were not compliant with that commitment and it's our very strong view that that commitment should now be honoured by the British government and we'll be pressing them to do so. And that the view, it would seem, to some degree of uh, the Supreme Court uh, saying that it is up to the British government to decide on what type of a review should take place but that there should be a review uh, but uh, that uh, it has uh, dismissed the idea that uh, it should have held a public inquiry. Some review must take place instead. Alright, uh, we'll hear uh, more about that. I'm sure in time to come. Uh, in the meanwhile, let me remind you that if you'd like to make contact with us, as always, our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns is back with us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us uh, this morning. Much happening on the phones, Marie? Lots and lots happening, Michael. Oh, okay. Loads of people in touch. Paddy, Michael is talking over the politicians. Very hard to listen to. The biggest problem is that people have information 
nation but won't talk to the Gardaí. Tom, why do they not introduce internment in Drogheda? Kay from County Meath. If people stopped Facebooking where the Gardaí are, then the criminals couldn't avoid them. Annan and Dog, why can't the Irish army be put on the streets to help? Deirdre says can't understand why there's not enough Gardaí in Drogheda considering what's going on. Uh, Jim from RD, Michael asked, when will the Gardaí be back in Drogheda? They will have plenty out tomorrow, Michael, for the Taoiseach, so you can guarantee that they'll be back then. Oh, that's a very good point, yes. Sean from County Loud, the Garda resources are reduced because there's not enough funding. The money is squandered on the courts and too many high-paid staff being used as prisoner escorts. We really need to rethink our strategies. Yeah, well, plenty of guards escorting prisoners uh, which uh, is unavoidable uh, but guards uh, guarding patients in hospital who've been shot by criminals uh, is another thing uh, possibly uh, a better use of resource uh, to stop the people from being shot in the first place. Well Mags on that point text in to say is it true that there are guardy in the hospital minding Owen Maguire and why if this man has wealth has the council to find somewhere for him to live what about ordinary people that get no help says Mm. Mags Well I don't know I suppose uh, if uh, someone tries uh, to shoot you dead uh, you need protection and uh, if you're in the hospital uh, as is the case here that's uh, where the protection is provided and uh, there have been reports uh, Stephen Brain of the Irish Sun told us uh, that Mr Maguire was under armed guard uh, since going into hospital last July he's paralysed, he's in a, a wheelchair uh, under long term care it's his brother who was shot on Tuesday and is now in the hospital and I don't know but you would assume that he's under armed guard as well, there's certainly armed guards outside of the hospital the armed response unit outside of the hospital and uh, tension uh, to be felt on the streets of Drogheda as he underwent surgery uh, the other night. Ray says that it's stiffer prison sentences that are needed, not necessarily more guardie. When people do wrong, they should serve a long time behind bars. Maybe that will stop them from doing it. Mm. A listener phoned in, Michael didn't want to give her name, said she was travelling down Magdalen Street in Drogheda at 5.25 yesterday and there were two men in balaclavas beating a young fella, she says she thought he was in his 20s, with a crowbar. Really? She said it was absolutely horrific. Anyone walking by would have encountered this on her town. It could have been an old person or a young person or Mm. somebody with children. It was at 5.25. She said she was absolutely horrified and very shaken to even witness this in in a car at Uh, a distance away. Uh, Have we verified that, uh, Marie? No, but this person, it would be... um, didn't want to give her name, but mm. would be out of good authority. Okay, that but, rang in. All right, yes. but we need to verify that, obviously, yes. and we we'll make contact uh, with the guardie now yes. uh, and uh, uh, p- try and put uh, some more light on that particular incident—a yes. very serious incident that's being reported to us. There, uh, let's talk about uh, some serious concern that parents may have if uh, their children are in the Scouts, and a letter that has gone. From Tusla to Scouting Ireland, uh, it uh, was uh, dated the 18th of this month and spoke 
uh, about some live cases where children were exposed to, to risk of harm and that a review should take place, an immediate review of how children were supervised and a recommendation that Scouting Ireland consider the viability of continuing with overnight trips. Tanya Ward, Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance, joins us now. The Minister is obviously very concerned. Tusla is very concerned. Is the Children's Rights Alliance concerned? Well, I think from from our perspective, uh, I think the important thing is that Tusla is working with Scouting Ireland on some of the issues that are coming up. Um, and I think you know, we will be we will be concerned if any organisation doesn't have a proper safeguarding statement in place and doesn't have all the different measures you need to manage all the different risks that children and young people could be exposed to. And I know this in the wider um, uh, children and youth organisations and the community and voluntary sector. I think everyone has been struggling to come up to scratch in terms of their procedures in line with Children First, uh, the new legislation that came in in 2015. And it really shows you, I suppose, the Scouting Ireland example really shows you why we needed to have Children First made law, um, why we needed to have TUSA uh, to have these special roles that they can work with organisations on having the right procedures in place. Immediately you'd uh, jump to the conclusion that uh, Scout leaders or volunteers who are supervising Scouts uh, uh, may be a, a problem or maybe uh, abusing children to put it uh, in uh, blunt terms uh, but there's concern about how children are behaving when they're out on these trips themselves yeah, I mean, that seems to be what's coming through from this, that, you know, every organisation will have its own risks when it comes to managing child protection concerns. Um, and what's coming through, I suppose, from the work of, of Scouting Ireland and these organisations is the risks that young people may pose to each other. So, I mean, Scouting Ireland is an, is, uh, a, an extraordinary organisation in terms of the opportunities it provides for children and young people um, alongside the guides and the other organisations and the, the trips abroad, mm. The overnight trips are important for, you know, developing uh, a young person's independence. But so what's coming up through um, the engagements between Tusla and Scouting Ireland is how are children kept safe on these trips from each other? Are they being supervised appropriately? If an incident does happen, how is that incident handled by uh, your your? Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen your volunteers and your staff um, and so in, in one way I don't see it as terribly unreasonable that Tusa would say well you need to reconsider these foreign trips for now because you need to get your house in order before you organise them so I can understand why Tusa might be suggesting this in this case. Uh, and I suppose the point is uh, that if a child is at risk it's pretty much irrelevant where uh, the risk lies or, or who uh, is uh, the person that is a risk to the child what is of importance to the child and uh, parents and people who love the child is that the child is at risk so for parents listening to us this morning if they have children in the scouts what advice have you got for them 
Well, I think the, 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 this would be advice really for any parent um, and any young person really as well who might be availing of any local community service, such as the Scouts or uh, the GAA, is that you always should be looking for what's their safeguarding statement. And that tells you um, what risks they have identified uh, and, and how they're going to respond to those risks. So if, if a scouting group has identified, yes, young people who might assault each other um, in a rare occurrence, but it does happen, we are going to have proper supervision in place so that can't happen uh, on an overnight trip. So they're the kind of things that parents can look for and young people themselves when they're looking at the, the a safeguarding statement. You know, ask the local group, what's it, can I see the safeguarding statement uh, that you have in place? That will tell you if they vet their staff, that will tell you if they do training of their staff, it will tell you what supervision is in place when you go on those overnight trips. And you should be asking that as well. What are they? uh, And and that's how you kind of build up your own confidence uh, and and ensure that your child isn't exposed to any risk. But we should be doing that anyway as parents in relation to any service that your child is is involved in. It's actually expected of us that we would do that and we'd look for something like a safe Okay, but but, but given what we're hearing about the concern Tusla has, would it be right to conclude that you can't be given that insurance by Scouting Ireland at the moment? Well, you see, I, 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 mm. I, I don't know if you can say that in, in a blanket way because um, it, if too, it really depends on, I think, it's such a big organisation, there's so many people involved in it. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think linking with the local group is really important, actually, for a parent to, to be assured. Um, if, what is, I think, really positive is that TUSLA is working directly with Scouting Ireland. And when this happens, when TUSLA decides to work with you on this and, they, and, 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 and it can be a robust engagement, you hands up and you say, yes, we'll do whatever we need to do, TUSLA. We'll put those different measures in place. Okay. I think what you hear from the Minister is that she, she's taking it very seriously and that she won't continue funding Scouting Ireland unless some of these measures are, have, have been addressed coming from TUSLA. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Tanya, for joining us uh, this morning. Tanya Ward is uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Now let's go back to some more of uh, the calls. You have more comments there, Marie. Yes, Martin from RD phoned in. He was listening in to the interview at the top of the programme with Senator Gerald Nash and Deputy Fergus O'Dowd. And he says, I'm 66 years of age this year and I've never heard such bull in all my life about resources. People are fed up and brand of listening to it. He says that that he feels that the Gardaí should get better training and that he feels at the moment they're too young joining the Gardaí, that some Gardaí are too green to be put out to deal with this type of activity. And he feels that as a backup, uh, we have the army out keeping peace in foreign countries. Let's use our army, let them be back up and be deployed in the town. Jack from Slane, if only two Gardaí were on patrol, how many were actually rostered and what were they doing that day? Another listener says, uh, I'm fed up um, listening to politicians talk about this. It's not talk we need, Michael. We need to get some good old solid action. Mm. Frank from Drogheda phoned in. This is far too serious an issue, Michael, uh, for all this puffing and blowing and political point scoring. It's wasting people's time. It's far too serious of stuff. We are talking about people's lives here. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, the responsibility of uh, the politicians uh, to respond. I'm not sure how else uh, you'd uh, approach it. 
And just finally, I know mm-hmm. we're going to be speaking to a deputy uh, a minister, even Jamie English, in the show. But Theresa was in touch to say, I'm very surprised at the proposal being suggested in relation to uh, old people maybe downsizing and says we've worked very hard all our lives for our homes. And how dare anybody suggest that we give them up? Sometimes our families and grandchildren come to stay and we need to have space in our houses. All right. Well, I'm sure the minister will say that uh, it's not being suggested. Uh, it's giving you the option if you want it. Uh, but uh, thanks uh, for that. And thanks, <coughs> excuse me, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Thanks, Marie, for that matter. If you'd like to make comment, our telephone number, as always, is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, going back uh, to that comment a moment ago and uh, the options uh, that there are for older people in terms of housing going into the future, a policy, housing options for our ageing population was launched yesterday by the aforementioned uh, Damien English, who's a Fine Gael TD in Meath East and Minister for Housing and Urban Renewal, and Minister Jim Daly, the Minister for Mental Health and Older People. Minister Damien English on the line with us now, and uh, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, you're saying that this is options, you're not suggesting to people that they downsize. Absolutely not, absolutely not, Michael, and thanks for that clarification, because there's mixed <laughs> misinterpretation out there in some cases some uh, on purpose. This is very much a document about options, about choice and about opportunities. Uh, it's clear to me, and I think you'd be, you'd be familiar with the, pro- the, the project there in Dundalk, the Haven, the Great Northern Haven uh, development, which was done in conjunction with Dundalk IT, uh, a fabulous uh, block of apartments that are designed specifically for people who are ageing to live in. I met the residents there recently, and, and there's many more schemes like that around the country where people decide to right size, I would say, to move to a house more suitable to their needs so they feel safe or secure, have all their needs tended to look, look after when it comes to maintenance. Uh, if they need health service, they can get them in as well. So mm. we want to roll out versions of that right around the country. I've seen some lovely projects, that one in Dundalk, the Haven, there's one in Kildare, the Macaulay Centre, uh, there's one in Kilmaine and one in Mead, there's different ones all around the country. And But there's not enough of them. Uh, people don't have the choice. And in most cases, there's a waiting list for people who would like to move into them. So again, it's only those who would like to. And in this document... In, in other words, a, a if, if somebody is living in a, a ten-bedroom house on four acres of land in the middle of nowhere and they believe that's the right size for them, well, then that's fine with the government, is it? That's, that's absolutely right, Michael. If they're they happy to stay in, in that house, that's, that's without a doubt, that's their choice. And it's funny as you say that because... All the research we've carried out to, 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 make the, to formulate this policy document was, was, was an engaging with, with people who are ageing, with all the different representative bodies who represent them, their stakeholders, and they've all said that it's about, first of all, giving people the option to stay in that home, mm. the home they have, uh, and giving them adaptions or technologies or whatever it takes to be able to give them the option to stay at home. And the second option then is to provide a different type of accommodation within their own community that they will be happy to move into. Some will do that because they, 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 they want to have services around them and with them, and, and some will do it for company. Others will do it because they want to free up their house for somebody else. That's their totally and utterly their choice. But today, that choice is not there in most places because mm-hmm. we have an undersupply of suitable accommodation for people who are ageing. And, and, and that's what we're trying to do here. And if there was a, a, enough of this type of accommodation available, do you think that there would be enough people who would decide that's for me? Or do we need the incentives that you're talking about? Because you're talking about establishing incentives. Uh, two things there, Michael. I think that there is probably enough of a demand without incentives 
uh, at the moment, to be honest with you, because we've done a lot of research on this and we've engaged people. But we put in here, there is a, a study underway with the Department of Finance to see, in some cases, do you need incentives, as in if there's a little bit of cost for some people who mightn't have equity in their own house to move to a different house. They might need some help there with some of the tax matters or with the legal fees, bits and pieces like that. That's one. The other incentives we're looking at to see, is there a need to encourage the private sector uh, to, to construct and design and build more suitable accommodation for older people because they're not doing it at the moment. So we'll, 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 we'll see why not because in my view there is a market for that but yet it's not happening. So we'll look at that and it's like the, the, the incentives part of this is probably only one or two actions out of 40 to see do we need them. To be honest with you, most people I've met do not need incentives. They just want a place the, the option to be able to do this because about 85% of this category of people already own their house, they have a house um, and they'd be happy to maybe use that house uh, in, in, a, in a way to be able to move into a more suitable house and that's mm. why I call it right sizing as opposed to downsizing because it's a house that's right for them and that's what we're trying to do here. But so, you're talking about incentives for builders and developers on one hand and on the other hand some incentives for people to make the move. What incentives would you put in place for people to make the yeah, move? Yeah, exactly, Michael. Sorry, I, I didn't say that we they were putting in place incentives of builders. What I'm saying is we're looking at the market to see why are they not doing this? And in some cases, it might be a case of local authorities working with the sector to bring forward, to use our land for these places. In other cases, is probably to, to prove to the, to the private uh, construction sector that there is a business here. There's people who want to buy these homes. And we're looking at the planning matters as well to see how we can encourage this. Because it's very clear to me, if you look at where our population is going, in 10 years' time, we'll have over 1.4 million people will be mm. over the age of 65. And we have to make plans for, for that population trend now and be ready for when there's a massive increase in the number of people who are over 65. But you're talking uh, about a scheme that's aimed at people over 55, are you not? We're looking at a scheme for... I'm not saying exactly what the age is. That that's just a stat we have in terms of population. But this is... A, well, it's funny enough, when you do the research, if you have this conversation mm. earlier with people, when they're in their, their 50s or 60s, they're more inclined to make plans to move when they are a little bit older again in their 70s or 80s. When you sit down with someone who's, who's in their 80s and ask them at that stage, are they, uh, would they like to move? They're not as inclined to move because it's a, it's a big deal at that age, all the hassle of moving. Mm. So the earlier we have this conversation with people to make plans for their future, the better mm. we can provide but that. And possible. that's what the is about, is trying to make plans now for the future as well as for the present as well. Okay. And it's, it's but it's possible, Minister, is it not that there'll be changes to stamp duty or capital gains tax uh, in order to encourage people to... In, in some of the submissions into this mm-hmm. document, there were the, uh, many have raised the issue, do we need to make changes to stamp duty or inheritance tax or like that to, 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 make this, uh, to make the transaction a little bit easier? And that's what the Department of Finance have agreed to look at with us. Uh, and we'll see if, that's, if that bit of research has started, that has started now, if that proves that we need to make some intervention at budget time, then that's when you would do that, at the budget time mm-hmm. in the future. But I'll be honest with you, Michael, with, when I see a waiting list right around the country for people who want to move into this accommodation, I don't mm-hmm. think we need that but um, but certainly something we have to look at and tick that box and that's why we have here 40 actions that we need to complete to be able to say now we have everything right that we need in place all the policies in place to be able to make sure we're going to provide enough accommodation for people of older years. All right, I I saw Darrell O'Brien of Fianna Fáil saying it was half baked and you were trying to terrify people to downsize Uh, and I'm sure you'll reject that uh, but would it uh, be more fair if you like uh, to suggest that it's a a three pronged uh, approach to this one is to pay people to move uh, the other is uh, to terrify them as he says and uh, the third then is uh, to guilt them into it 
Well, number one, Michael, I think it's, it's very strange of Dara O'Brien to say we're terrifying people. This is a policy that has come from people uh, who are of older years, who are ageing. It has come from all the people who work with them. It's come from a year and a half of, of meeting them, talking to them, visiting all these places, sitting down with all the stakeholders in over two different conferences to engage with them, building on all the researchers out there. So I think Darrell Bryan is completely and utterly out of touch when he says that we're trying to terrify people because we're absolutely not doing that. This is responding to what they're asking us to do and putting in place a policy that makes it possible, give people the option to stay in their community, to find a house more suitable to their needs, or a lot of these actions here are, are in, increasing the funding to adapt their existing house. So I think Dara O'Brien is really, really now clutching at straws and is completely and utterly out of touch with, the, with what public actually want. And, I, and it's sad that he's gone to that level because I think it's really disappointing because this is about trying to work with people who are ageing uh, to give them options. And I think they, they you know, it, it, mm. it's, he's out of touch. But anyway, we leave it there. Well, yeah, come if, on. If, if people took that option for whatever reason, what would happen to their existing house? Well, again, it, they own their house, so it would be their yeah. choice. Do they sell it, they sell it on the private market or sell it, it to the state? Absolutely. It's, it's their house. They're totally, uh, they can do what they like with it because it's their house. And that's what I'm saying. A lot of the people who are asking us for this policy document already own a house. Mm. But they would say to us, it's not suitable for their needs because it's not age friendly. It's not, uh, it's not uh, energy friendly. Mm. It's a lot of different reasons. And they'd, they'd like to have the option to move mm. into a different house or to adapt their own house. Like yesterday, mm. I announced uh, increased money for two schemes, which is about home sharing. Uh, and, and reorganising the the, 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 the the shape of your house to, to accommodate someone to come and live with you and pay your rent. If you want, a student or somebody else or a nurse or a doctor, somebody else who might rent with you. I was in a house uh, in Clondalkin uh, three weeks ago that we that we did do this. So we, 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 we provided money to adapt the house. Uh, the lady's from Mead, as it turns out, in Old Castle, and she lives in Dublin now. Uh, and now she's taking in a lodger who's paying her rent, and that's, that's income for her. So there's a lot of solutions in here that are, are absolutely about keeping people in their own home or adapting the house, or sharing the house, or, if that doesn't work then, to give them the option of a, of a new house. And but I they, think they, it's all quite positive. And it's their house, their existing house is theirs. They can do what they choose to do with that, because they can sell it on the open market, pass it on to a family in their own family, they can give it to their son and daughter. You know, that's entirely up to them. Okay, and that's but the, the, the idea, Minister, but I tell you, the, the idea, I gather, Minister, is to utilise the housing stock that we have, and uh, instead of one person rattling around a three-bedroomed house uh, that uh, a couple of people could live in it, or a family of five or six or whatever, uh, could be using that uh, accommodation, uh, and that would make more accommodation available in the country, which would help uh, with a, a lot of the problems, and uh, a lot of the problems are laid out stark for us uh, today with uh, the worst homelessness figures uh, ever recorded uh, in January. Uh, now, pretty much 10,000 people on the homeless list. Yeah, two things in that. Um, absolutely, you're right that if some people decide that they want to uh, no longer live in a large house and move into a smaller house, somebody else will benefit from that large house. That is true. But I want to be very clear on this. That is not what we're trying to achieve with this document. This is a specifically document designed with older people in mind and with them and listening to them and their needs. And this is an action plan to make sure we respond to mm. their needs, first of all. And that's, I want to be absolutely clear on that. Mm. Then number two, yes, 
that might in some cases uh, end up with some with houses who, who other families might choose or somebody else might choose and, and that would be a bonus to society but again that's a, a bonus this is about looking after the needs of people who are ageing and that's all of us we're all, we're all heading there so I'll be very clear on that number one number two it is right to say that, 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 that there's again I mean we never deny that that there is a, an extremely um, serious situation with the number of people who are homeless the, the only piece of good news out of those figures is that the number of families uh, is beginning to reduce and consecutively now for a couple of months the number of families in emergency accommodation is coming down it's in small steps but the trend is going in the right way and if you, if you take mm. Dublin and January look at the month of January in Dublin uh, 96 families were helped out of emergency accommodation into a home. Mm. 97 families who were about to become homeless, uh, we found them a housing solution and they didn't become homeless. That's over 200 families were able to step in and intervene with. And that's the kind of level of activity we have to continue with every month if we're going to bring these figures Uh, down. And that activity and those efforts have been recognised by the Children's Rights Alliance. As you know, Minister, they published their report card on uh, government progress in protecting children in this country this week and uh, they gave the government a NEF in housing and said that despite your best efforts, you're failing people, you're failing children and the latest figures for children have gone up from 3,267 to 3,624 children who are homeless. Uh, Saoirse Brady of the Children's Rights Alliance, yes they spelled it out by telling us an individual story of a, a little girl who gets up in the morning and has to travel two hours to Barnardo's to get her breakfast uh, and on one of the days that she did that she had wet herself by the time she had completed the journey. Uh, look, Michael, absolutely. There's some very, very sad stories out there. And I, and I meet these families myself every day of the week. And, and there's, no, there's no explaining to them that we're, going, that we're going to solve this because they need us just to give them the house. And I totally understand that. And, and I, you can have nothing but absolute, you know, feel for those families in that situation. And that's why our focus is to increase the supply of housing to try and get them a home. And I want to be clear, people, because people need to know there's a little bit of hope here. This year, with the money provided in, from the taxpayers through the government, we will deliver 10,000 new social houses. So practically 10,000 families will move into a new social house this year. So all those children and all those adults are in homeless accommodation. There's about five, if you add up this year, in the year ahead with that money, about 5,000 adults with their children will leave emergency accommodation. And so the majority of those people that are in emergency accommodation today will leave and will be in a house. The the difficulty is other families are kind of coming in behind them. And that's what's happened the last year or two as well. So we have to try and stop people becoming homeless in the first place. And that's why I refer to the figures in January where we did prevent 100 families from becoming homeless. And that's the only way we can do this. A, is stop people going in, becoming homeless in the first place. And B, people who are in emergency accommodation to get them into a house. And that's where we, the, the supply of housing mm. makes a difference. And the supply has been increasing every year now for the last two years. Mm. This year, it will reach the magic 10,000. 55 more children homeless last month than the month previous. About 400 more children homeless last month and the month previous. Uh, do you accept that rating from the Children's Rights Alliance? Uh, F. So, so Michael, there's no, until, until you have every family out from emergency accommodation, of course, you, 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 that's what you're going to be getting is Fs and Gs and every other letters. But it's, it's not about that. My focus, Minister Murphy's focus and our focus as a government is to build the new homes and get them into a house. And uh, that's what we're doing. We, and I, and I, I accept it doesn't matter what letter we get. It, it, even if you gave me an A, it wouldn't stop our efforts until we get everybody 
there's an emergency accommodation every family into a home that's our aim here that's what the taxpayer wants us to do and that's what we will do but I'm afraid there is no quick magic solution to build houses we have to just build them and that's what we're doing I think the key is what has happened over the last two years moving into the third year of our action plan for housing is supply is up and over uh, this year you'll see over 10,000 new social houses that is the only way we can get people out of emergency accommodation. And I wish we could have had 10,000 houses two years ago, but we couldn't because they weren't there. But they'll be there this year. And on top of that, then we'll build 10,000 more. And that is how you help families. Last year, over 27,000 families were helped uh, through, through local government, through other approved housing bodies, through all the NGOs, like my very trust and all of them, by using taxpayers' money. Uh, nearly over 2 billion of that taxpayers' money was spent to provide a housing solution, a home for 27,000 families. And that's what we'll do again this year. And that's the only way, Michael. And there's no other way of doing this. And we have to do it as quickly as we possibly can. Okay. The number of children has gone up because there's a lot of large families involved there, but the number of families is going down. So that may, means we're, the trend is beginning to go the right way in terms of the numbers of families. You know, the number of people in terms of children and so on will, 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 will fluctuate each, each, each month. But we have to look at the number of families that are leaving emergency accommodation. And that's where, where our focus is. And, and you know, I, I think if we, if we spend our money rightly this year and deliver all those houses that we, that we know we will deliver, we'll be in a much better place in the year. And that's what okay. we have to be. Well, let's hope so. Minister, thank you indeed for joining us, as always. Uh, that's uh, Minister for Housing, Planning and Local Government, Fine Gael, TD and Meath West, Damien English. Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish Daily Mail reported uh, that legislation uh, which would introduce uh, calorie counts on menus will be introduced by the end of the year. There would either be a calorie count beside the price of the meal on the menu or there could be a traffic light system used, the paper suggested, of red, orange or green depending on whether there were high, medium or low calorie items on offer. Adrian Cummins' chief executive Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland, and he joins us now. And a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us. Uh, you've been resisting this for some time. It seems as though uh, Minister Harris is set to go ahead and introduce uh, this legislation. What's the problem with it, though? I think a lot of people would like to see calories on menus like that, would they not? The problem is that it's unworkable, unpoliceable, and there's a lot more other problems around obesity in this country that can be tackled by other than bringing in a piece of legislation that won't make a blind bit of difference to the BC problem in Ireland. Um, why is it unworkable? It's unworkable on a number of uh, areas. Basically, uh, the calculation of calories, uh, how is the chef going to calculate calories uh, if they change the menu is on a daily basis? Um, they won't have the knowledge, the skill set to do that. Uh, a lot of members are ringing us this morning up in outrage with regard to this. This is on top of increased VAT rate and all the other pieces of legislation that's come down the tracks in the last last month. And there's a lot of scepticism as well by uh, Joe Public and and uh, our membership uh, that this has been introduced just at the time there's a national scandal around children's hospitals to divert away from it. But going back to the back to calories on menus, I mean, if you, no other country in the world has has brought in calories on menus for individual uh, restaurants. The calories have been introduced for fast food chains in the United States and Australia and on a voluntary basis in Ireland. And in all the fast food 
uh, chain restaurants mm. in Ireland have it already because it's uniformed menu. It doesn't change from one year to another, and that's very easy to do. But if you're a small individual coffee shop, as the minister said, he's going to tar- target them as well. Uh, restaurants, pubs that sell food, hotels, they just don't have the resources or the infrastructure to do this, and nobody knows how this is going to be policed. Is there going to be inspectors going into yeah. into a diners, mm. taking away their plate of food and, and analyse it? Well, how about, we not, how about not policing it? How, how about embracing it and deciding... This is uh, not. This is not, just. just uh, let me yeah. put a, a, what I think is a logical argument here. How about embracing it and deciding this is not just the right thing to do? It's what people want, and it might even improve and increase business because people will come out and eat knowing that they're not eating food that they shouldn't be eating. And you know what's going to happen then, uh, Michael? Is that you'll have a business, two businesses side by side, and one will have a burger at five hundred calories, and the guy down the road will see. Or your man is at 500 calories. You're only doing the 320 calorie burger, mm. and both will be exactly the same in, in uh, calorific content. I'd have thought restaurateurs were more uh, honest than that. Well, I can't speak for every restaurant in the, in, in the country, but obviously you're going to have some that is going. Are they to, chancers? Are they? I'm not saying that they're uh, that they're. But they, they, they'd I, lie intentionally, would they? I'm not saying that they will lie. Well, I don't think well. they would do that. I mean, if they if there was one saying it was 500 uh, and another saying it was 300, well, the one who's saying it's 300 would probably take a look at it and say, God, have I got it wrong? And then bring it up to 500. Well, Michael, do you know how many calories is in a steak and chips? No, but I don't. I don't, but I, I, I'd imagine my other half does. And I imagine it's quite easy to learn and that uh, a chef would learn it quite easily. Well, I didn't. I never knew until the last few days when uh, when this issue popped up again. Mm. That there's more calories in an avocado, which is a good yeah. good uh, food, yeah. than there is in the Mars bar. Yeah. So there's good calories and bad calories at the mm. end of the day. And our argument around this: if we want to tackle obesity in this country, the most important thing to do is about educating young people about healthy eating. And we've asked the minister. Of Minister of yeah, now, Adrian, hold, hold, uh, hold on a second. You're, you're not going to tell us how to improve obesity uh, two seconds after you're telling us you didn't know anything about calories up to a week ago. No, I didn't, I didn't say but about you, calories. Sure you, you did. You said you, you told us you, did, you hadn't got a clue. Well, I uh, I'm not a nutritionist and a calculation. Yeah, neither calorie, am I. Neither am I, but there's lots of people who are watching their calorie count all of the time. They tot every meal up every single day uh, and they're watching it very, very closely and they're making decisions in line with that. Uh, and they go into restaurants and they find it very difficult. Uh, and this would be relatively simple to introduce if there wasn't resistance. Well, I beg to differ with you with the character. This would be very simple to introduce. It would not be very simple to introduce and anybody in the business knows quite well that it is not simple to introduce. So that's that's not correct anyway, because what I have seen over the last... Uh, OK, let's, let's talk about your steak and chips. How, how many calories in it? I haven't a clue, Michael, nor does a uh, vast majority... Well, OK, how, much, how, many cal- how many calories in an avocado then? To my knowledge, an avocado is nearly 600 calories, and a Mars bar is about 400 calories. Right. That's... Off the, off the top of my head. Okay, so six, six, said, six, six, 600 calories in an avocado, right? So let's say uh, you make guacamole uh, and you mix it with sour cream, which would have a, a certain amount of fat. And let's say overall, it'd bring it up to a, a thousand calories, uh, but you get 10 portions out of it. So it's 100 calories. It, it, it's not that difficult, is it? 
Uh, well, who's going to tell you exactly what um, sour cream is uh, calorific content? Well, if you you're serving to. sour cream every day, you inform yourself. Well, uh, Michael, have you worked in a restaurant? Yes. And have you cooked in the kitchen? Yes. Well, I'd, I, I, I think now, Michael, if you go back and you start cooking in the kitchen... Yeah, you, you do know, the same thing every day in most kitchens, and then you'll have specials. And what about the restaurants that change the menu on a daily basis? The changes... What are you going to do for, the, to do for those? The, the restaurant that changes its menu on a, a daily basis is maybe working off, what, between 20, 30, 40 different dishes over the course of a year. A lot more than that, Michael. I know. I'm sure there's... How many different dishes are there? I mean... <laughs> are you saying that the Michelin star restaurants in Ireland... Are no, I'm, no I'm, I'm not. I'm not. But they're, they're, they're very well-trained chefs. And the Michelin star uh, restaurant chefs would not... I'm sure they would not need training in terms of uh, the amount well, of calories in, in their myself. food. I'd say, they, I'd say that's already part of their training. And I, I don't know that, but I would imagine that their training is such that they would know that. Well... I can assure you that it is not part of the training at the moment on the calorific content in, 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 for those that are training to be a chef at, uh, because I've seen the syllabus and it's not on the syllabus. But going back to the Mitchell and Star chefs, they're the most outraged with regard to this because what, what's going to happen is you're going to move towards more prepared, pre, pre, pre-prepped food coming into the kitchen, which is going to affect your local producers and their local suppliers, and that's where this minister wants to move everybody to bland food and move over towards, uh, as, as one member has described me, everything, an, an any state. Everything is pre-prepped. No, it's not. Of course it is. I coming mean, in, coming, coming in the back door into the kitchen, it's not all pre-prepped. Well, no, 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 but it's pre-prepped in somebody's mind. I mean, when you talk about a Michelin star restaurant chef, he might talk about a pinch of this or a handful of that or a shake of that, but he knows exactly how much he's talking about. And he doesn't just, you know, over-spice it and then try to undo it. They're, they're, they're professionals. I don't doubt that our members and chefs are not professionals. What I'm saying to you, Michael, is there has been no training in this in our education system for for chefs in Ireland. No, but we're not and talking about this coming in tomorrow. Uh, the minister's talking about bringing in bring legislation in the at the end of the year. He wants to bring it in the autumn. Mm. Uh, uh, why he wants to bring it in the autumn, I don't know. Maybe he wants to get it in before a fall of government. But anyway, leave that to one side. I, I fully believe that there's other solutions on the table to deal with obesity other than calories on menus and we are open to working with the minister to, to, to help him on that we put forward a proposal around ed- education in schools and in primary schools and secondary schools we haven't even had a response to it so that's where the minister wants to he wants to come up with a PR stunt uh, and a lot of Joe public at the moment can see through this there's a PR stunt to, to deflect from other issues that's going on in the health service at the moment. Okay. Well, I think there's some people who'd like it, pure stunt or otherwise. I, I, listen, I mean, I, you look at the restaurants there, that have sins uh, there, that have sins uh, on their menus. Uh, they're there very is, popular with people who are dieting. There is some restaurants that are specialist restaurants that have calories on menus because their their customers need to know on a daily basis what they're eating. Mm. Or well, some people purposes. who do both. They have the normal and menu. It, 
and they have the Slimming World menu or they have the whatever menu, whatever uh, 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 Slimming uh, diet uh, people are on. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, restaurants uh, who offer uh, alternatives like that uh, and they are very popular. Well, I, I, I believe and I will, will probably agree to disagree, Michael. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it should be about portion control as opposed to uh, cal- uh, calories and menus. That would be the easiest way to deal with it. Okay. We leave it there. Thanks indeed, uh, as always, for joining us. Thank you very much indeed. Adrian Cummins is uh, the Chief Executive of uh, the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, The Public Accounts Committee acted acted significantly outside of its remit when it questioned uh, the former Chief Executive of Rehab, Angela Kearns, according uh, to a ruling from uh, the Supreme Court yesterday. Let's talk about this with uh, the political editor of uh, the Sunday Business Post, Michael Brennan, who's on the line. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for joining us. Uh, And I would like to talk about that, but before I do, uh, maybe I could ask you how you could justify your salary with the Sunday Business Post and when I've asked you that and uh, you feel it's unfair, maybe I could ask you ten times again the same question in different ways. I, I feel, yeah, you're you're doing a clever <laughs> reworking, Michael, of, of what happened to Angela Kearns when she mm. went in before the Public Accounts Committee. Um, and certainly that is that is why the committee has ended up in trouble with the Supreme Court poised to have a, a negative finding against them. Mm. Uh, they invite her in when there was a big controversy about payments by the state to charitable bodies. Um, it was CRC, the Central Remedial Clinic at the time. Then it turned out rehab was involved in contracts and dealings with CRC. And, and Angela Kearns, as the, as the head of rehab at the time, came under, under scrutiny. So she didn't... This is, I suppose, a crucial point for people to understand. The Public Accounts Committee can only invite in bodies that are audited by the Controller and Auditor General, who's effectively the state's auditor. Mm. They're a voluntary body, a charity. They're not audited by the Controller and Auditor General, so they had no right to, to bring her in. They always maintained, well, we invite her in, and she came voluntarily. But the Supreme Court has said, look, it, it acted outside its remit. And in a nutshell, that's, that's certainly the biggest problem where they went. And, and also then, as you've pointed out indirectly, mm. once they invite her in, they started asking about her, sal- her salary, uh, which was uh, 240000 as they as they knew well. Yeah. They started asking her about her travelling by helicopter and by car and, and every kind of other thing you can imagine. Uh, and for how long was she there? Seven, eight hours or something like that? Yeah, she said at the time, I remember uh, looking at her, actually her affidavit when she originally brought this to court. She was in, she said, for about seven hours with only one break for the bathroom. Um, while she said her her, her members went in went in, and, um, and, and effectively were able to go in and out and give media interviews uh, during the committee hearings while she was stuck there. So she, did, she found it to be a very unpleasant experience, it's safe to say. And then she became very unwell and uh, the committee wanted her back before them again. They were told that that wasn't possible on health grounds and uh, they invited some other uh, senior members of rehab before them and again discussed her salary in her absence. Yes, and uh, I suppose she later complained then when she took court action, first the High Court and ultimately it wound up in the Supreme Court, she complained that she got death threats after the coverage uh, of it and that she she felt very, very stressed by her experience, uh, was hospitalised and uh, she said her she felt her reputation was roughly taken and torn to shreds. 
So it, it, it's it's a big. This is a big setback for for the Dáil's Public Accounts Committee, which is the most famous and best known committee in the Dáil. Mm. And I think it will embolden other other uh, people who are invited in future to attend before to think about legal action if they're if they're not happy about their treatment. Uh, and some of these politicians are famous as a, a result of being on the Public Accounts Committee, or would appear to want to become famous. Uh, through their membership of the committee. Yeah, I, I think I, you have to mention probably three names here. The, the three people who Angela Kearns certainly complained a lot about mm. at the time were John McGuinness, the chair of the committee, Fianna Fáil TD, yep. Mary Lou MacDonald, then a Sinn Féin TD, and now the, mm. the party leader, and Shane Ross, then a backbench TD, now the Minister for Transport. Shane Ross is particularly interesting. From talking to members of the committee at the time, he was very keen to get uh, Angela Kearns in before the Public Accounts Committee put a lot of pressure on. And interestingly, there was a, a pushback from other members of the committee, including, say, Owen Murphy, who was a member at the time and now is, is Minister for Housing. So there was divisions in the committee, but ultimately Ross and the others won the day. And uh, I think the other members will rue the day that they got their way and, and have now effectively... The, the Public Accounts Committee has been damaged by all of this. And I think a lot of people have looked at uh, the committee uh, and how it operates and how it seems as though on occasion, to some of us at least, uh, some of the members are, are trying to outdo others and trying to get the main headlines and ask the most serious question uh, in the most aghast way possible, uh, which uh, calls into question the workings of this committee because it has always been an impartial, uh, non-political, apolitical type of body which approached subjects that were uh, in terms of accounting for state spending in the most appropriate way. But what does the Supreme Court ruling mean in relation to that and how the committee will operate in future? I think probably two things. One is the committee will have to be very, very careful. It, it can only literally stay within its remit and call in bodies that are accountable to the controller and auditor general and therefore accountable to it. So that's that's the first thing. And the second thing is they will have to work effectively in a more defined way that people are brought in and questioned about the spending by the bodies they are in charge of and not allow committee members to stray off into other areas mm. that perhaps would be good for getting on uh, the TV news and getting mm. into the newspapers, but are not directly relevant. I, I would say, though, the Public Accounts Committee is it's an excellent committee. It's vital to how the doll does its work, and it would be a shame if this case was to, to lead to, in some way to to effectively the, the, the winding down of it. There has to be always a tension between the members and the witnesses it's not maybe a bad thing that a lot of them are slightly afraid or wary of going in there because they're supposed to be asked tough questions about the spending they've done and the PAC has been very useful to us over the years in terms of the information it has pulled out of people but it just has to be done in a fair way and in a balanced way. Okay, well uh, there'll be uh, further judgment on what happened with Miss Kearns in April as I understand it. We'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Michael Brennan, political editor of uh, the Sunday Business Post brings our programme to its conclusion today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember there'll be a podcast available on lmfm.ie this afternoon before we go as always, thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. 
the Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877 351 0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.